have your Bibles with you, we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke this morning as we continue our study there. And we're going to be in chapter 10, verses, we're going to read verses 25 through 37. I'm going to be reading from the New King James Version here this morning. He says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What, was, what is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he sent him on his own and set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, "Take care of him, and whatever more you spend." When I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was a neighbor to him who fell among thieves? And he said, he who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Let us pray. Father, we ask that you would add your blessing to the reading of your word here this morning, Father. And Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit might come and speak to our hearts, to our minds, Father, open our eyes that we might see, open our ears that we might hear, not my words this morning, but your words. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're looking at a very popular portion of scripture here this morning. Uh, many people, whether Christian or not Christian, could tell you the story of the Good Samaritan. Oftentimes we look at a section of scripture to determine what a Christian is supposed to be like. Being a good neighbor, helping those in need, and although this is correct, we tend to miss the greater message of this text. There's more going on in the passage here than just the story of the Good Samaritan. Nathan, I appreciate your testimony this morning because I wrestled all week with where to go. In fact, I told Pastor, I said, there's so many different ways to look at this, this passage. And when you spoke this morning, the Holy Spirit made it so clear. We can boil it down to two ways. What I can do versus what can God do. And I appreciate your testimony this morning. Giving God the glory that it wasn't him, but it was God. It was the power of the Holy Spirit working to him. So what can I do versus what can God do for me? 
As great as this story like this is, walking through it section by section as we tend to do in whether it's our devotional time or in even a sermon series like this, and I love when we go through, we were talking about in Sunday school this morning, going verse by verse. I love to do that, but sometimes when we do that, we forget that it's a story as a whole, and we tend to miss the 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 context of, of the whole passage. In fact, we oftentimes we just focus on verse 30 through 37, the story itself of the Good Samaritan, and we forget the questions that led up to the story. In fact, I would argue that the story of the Gospel of Luke makes a dramatic shift back in chapter 9, verse 51. If you have your Bibles with me with you, go ahead and turn back there. Or just look across the page. You don't even have to turn it if you have one like me. But it, uh, Luke writes, Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. If you read the story as a whole in the gospel from start to finish, you'll notice there's a shift there. Everything prior to this verse was, was Jesus with his disciples and Mary. But then here in chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus is, begins to focus on the cross. And the whole rest of the Gospel of Luke is moving us closer and closer to the cross. When Kathy and I were at Indiana Wesleyan University some year back, a lot of years back now, uh, Kathy took a class on the Gospel of John, and Keith Drury was the professor I wasn't in the class, but I've heard Kathy talk about it many years. And she said on the first day of class, they went in, and, and Dr. Drury was talking about it. And he went home, when they went home that night, he gave them their assignment. He said, go home and read the entire book of the Gospel of John in one setting. So she went home, and she read the book of John. A couple of days later, because she had classes on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or Tuesday, Thursday is typically how those, those classes went. The next day at class, they talked a little bit about the Gospel of John, and Dr. Drury said, go home and read the Gospel of John all the way through in one setting. So she went home and read the Gospel of John. Oh, I'm assuming she did. She passed the class. She got an A. So <laughs> I don't want to necessarily be uh, telling falsehoods here. Did you read it? Okay, thank you. <laughs> I'll give you your quarter later on. So she went, she went home and she read it again. Well, then the third day of class, they talked about the Gospel of John, and Dr. Drury gave them their assignment. Any guess what it was? Go home, read the Gospel of John. This went on, she said, for week after week. And there was an important lesson there, I think, that Dr. Drury was trying to emphasize, that when you read the Gospels, and you sit down and you read it all the way through, you begin to see stuff and see the connections and things that you don't necessarily see when you piece them together just chunk by chunk by chunk. We've been in the Gospel of Luke for now. I have an assignment for you. Any guess what it might be? Go home today. Read the Gospel of Luke from chapter 1 all the way through to the end without stopping. It'll take you about an hour and a half, maybe two hours if you're a slow reader. But yeah, so, and pastor would be blessed. Wouldn't you just love that if they just week after week were reading through the Gospel of John? But you begin to see, see the connections here. In Luke chapter 9, that verse 51 that I told you about, Dr. John would tell you that that was a predetermined yes he says, Jesus says his eyes were, they were, his face was fixed. Um, some of the other translations said that he had resolved in his heart 
that he was going to the cross. It was a predetermined yes uh, in the life of Christ. So when we look at this uh, story here, the story actually picks up in verse 25 where a certain man came to ask Jesus a question. And if you look at the the whole context, what you have here is somebody comes and asks Jesus a question. Jesus turns around and asks him a question. Then the guy asks Jesus another question. And then before Jesus asks him a question, he tells a story. And then he asks a question. And then you have the answer. So you kind of have this going, this back and forth of of the piece. So let's look at the first question here that the man asked in verse 25. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So here Luke tells us this was a man who was a a teacher. Uh, The New King James translates him as a lawyer, a lawyer. Some experts or some passages say he was an expert in the law. Now, this is not the law that we would think of today as with Cindy here, being an expert in the law, being an attorney. It's not that type of law. This would actually be, you might translate it as a theologian. This is somebody who knows the law of God. This is somebody who has spent his life studying, possibly even teaching the first five books of the Bible, which we would call the Pentateuch. What are the first five books? Just yell them out. Yes, very good. So this was an expert. He knew all five of these books. He knew the law of God. And so he comes to Jesus and asks what I think is a kind of an odd question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? I say it's odd because... Most of the time, inheritances doesn't come by way of doing something. An inheritance is given to you by way of somebody that you know. My children will inherit one-eighth <laughs> of whatever Kathy doesn't spend when, when I leave this, uh, leave this earth. So uh, kids, take good care of your mother so there's some, some left over for you. But, uh, but that's an inheritance. They're going to get a portion because they knew me. I heard one guy say uh, that this life, in getting ahead in this life, is all about who you know. And I would argue that's the same with the life to come. It's all about who you know. We are inheritance of what Christ has given us. And so you inherit when you know somebody and they give that to you. But what this guy was asking is what can I do? What can I do? Not what has God done, but what can I do to inherit? It presupposes that our inheritance can be earned. What can I do? If I'm good enough, if I work hard enough, then maybe I'll squeak in. And there may be some that believe that, that you can work your way. If I give a large enough offering, if I come to enough services, if I help my neighbor in time of need, what things can I do? If I do all these things, then I can inherit eternal life. Well, like any good teacher, Jesus asks the guy a question instead of just answering him right away. 
Many of you know we homeschool our kids, and I've watched Kathy do this a number of times over the years. She's the primary teacher at our house. I'm the principal, <laughs> the enforcer. No, not really. But the kids will come to her, and they'll have a problem on whether it's math or science or whatever it is that they're working on. It's something that they can't figure out. It's probably a good thing that I don't teach because I just give them the answer. And let's move on to the next problem. But Kathy, and I'm sure we I know we have teachers in here, good teachers will try to pull the answer from the students. And oftentimes I'll watch her do this by asking them a different question. Maybe change the way the question was asked. Come at it from a, from a different angle. Or ask them a completely different question altogether. And the, the goal is to under, help understand. The teacher really wants to know what is it that the pupil knows. Do they, do they really know the answer? They're just having a hard time formalizing it or, or, get it or, things, or getting to the end result. Um, Marilyn Durnell, Kathy's mom, she used to make the kids show their work when they do math. Because sometimes, I don't know if you realize this, sometimes kids do math different ways. But if they get to the same answer, well, that's fine, but let me see how you got to that answer so I know if you are truly understanding how it works or not. So Jesus turns around when this guy asks a question. Jesus turns around and asks him a question. And to paraphrase it, basically Jesus says, well, you're the expert of the law. What do you think? How do you read it, Jesus says. And the man replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, many of you may remember these, these set of verses in another text, in another gospel, in the gospel of Mark. In Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34, the same passage, um, Jesus quotes these two Two verses, But in the context in that passage, we have an expert of the law asking it as well, but he's asking it in a different, uh, with a different motive. He actually asks, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus answers him, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus actually quoted Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19 from the law, from the Pentateuch. The same two passages that this man here quotes when he's talking to Jesus. But Jesus wasn't quoting those passages or wasn't telling the guy, this is what you have to do to inherit eternal life. In Mark, Jesus is just answering the question, those are the two greatest commandments. Love God with your whole being and love your neighbor as yourself. Now maybe somewhere along the line the guy heard this and maybe he was testing, testing Jesus or challenging them or, or whatever. But it's his attitude that tells the story here. You see in that day and age when a teacher would come he would actually sit down and all the people would, would stand around him. And if you had a question, wouldn't stand around. No, I'm sorry. They would sit around with him as well. And then if you had a question, you would actually stand up, and then the teacher would address you and then you, or acknowledge you, then you would ask your question. But Luke tells us that this guy, he stood up not as respect, but he actually stood up to challenge or to test or to try Jesus. 
to try to see if he could catch him in a mistake or, or whatever. Because after all, he, he was an expert. So Jesus says to him that you answered correctly. Do this. Do what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Do this, and you will live. Dr. D.A. Carson, who's a research professor of New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Well, that's a mouthful right there. <laughs> he writes, now if you have no feel for literature, you might think Jesus is actually saying this is the way you become a Christian. Then you're not, if you believe that, then you're not listening to the flow of the whole account. Do you see what Jesus is saying? You've answered correctly. Anyone who meets such a standard lives. We meet that standard. If we meet that standard, then we don't need grace. All you have to do is be perfect. Go ahead. Do this and live. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, with every ounce of your being. Love God. And you'll live. The problem is, no one can do that. As I mentioned, I love that Nathan said, he didn't do it. God did it. God took away his cravings. It wasn't about him. It wasn't something he could do himself. It wasn't a mere, as my grandmother would say, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. I never even wore boots as a, as a kid. You know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and do what you're supposed to do. You can't live the Christian life that way. Jesus managed to answer this man's question with his own question forcing him to admit to himself self-righteousness. He supposed the man's emptiness. He exposed the man's inability. Go ahead and do this. All you have to do is be perfect, and you're in. Now Luke comments that the man hearing these words wanted to justify himself. I can kind of picture him. He's starting to squirm a little bit. Uh-oh. I've got into this debate, now where, how, do I, how do I get out of this? How do I save face? After all, I'm the, I'm the expert teacher here. So he begins to squirm just a little bit. He knows he's been bested in this debate. So he's got to justify himself. But there's something going on deeper here. Because the theme of self-justification, Dr. Carson says, runs through the book of Luke, throughout the gospel, in various different places. You see a theme go through. There's another book in the Bible where the theme of justification comes to the forefront, and that's in the book of Romans. In the book of Romans, we learn that justification is an act by which God justifies us. That is, God declares us to be just. God declares us to be righteous. It's something that God does. God justifies us on the basis of what Christ has done. He bore our guilt. Now Christ's righteousness is ours, and our guilt is his. He paid for it on the cross. On that basis, God justifies the ungodly. 
I learned in college that justification means just as though I've never sinned. And that's how God looks at us because he's not looking directly at us. He's looking at us through the precious blood of his son, Jesus Christ, that was shed on the cross. Amen? So when God looks at us, he sees the blood of Christ and looks at us just as though we've not sinned. He, he has justified us. So what's the opposite of justification? Well, that would be self-justification. Because justification is what God has done for us. So the opposite of God doing that would be us doing that. Therefore, it would be self-justification. And there's all kinds of sin that gets bound up in self-justification. Now, sometimes it's silly and not necessarily all that damaging. Think of the fisherman. I caught a fish this big. You know, and then maybe it was this big. Or the big one that got away. It was so big that the fishing line just could not handle the, handle the weight of that fish. And, and he got away. So sometimes it's somewhat innocent. But then there's other times we may tell a story. And maybe we got into an argument with somebody at work. And as we retell the story... Who wins? Cindy, you don't have to answer this out loud, but when a client comes to see you, they were wronged. They don't tell you maybe what they did in the situation, but they, they were wronged. I was, as I was um, going through this and studying and I was reading that section, I thought about a little incident. I was about eighth grade. Children do not do this. Most of the little good, the little kids are gone. But... I remember once in eighth grade, I got into a, an argument with another boy. And, you know, the boys, they solve themselves. They solve problems a little bit different than what girls do. Little boys, they just get in a little scuffle, and then they, they're still best friends. Well, me and this boy, we got into it, and we were old enough to know better. Like I said, eighth grade, maybe freshman or whatever. Well, he grabbed me by the shirt and shoved me against the wall, Mike, it was reactionary. I just, wham, I drilled this kid, and he, he knocked him back, and he was shocked. Well, then he grabbed me, and the next thing you know, I'm on the floor. I was a skinny little guy. He had me on one hand, and he had this hand like this, and I just knew I was done for right there. I was so shocked. I didn't even know what else to do, and luckily a teacher came around the corner, and we got up, and nobody did anything. But guess what? When I left there, who do you think won that fight? Yeah, because I justified that I got the punch in. I was the only one that threw a punch. I must have won that scuffle. I said, I begin to self-justify that, that I was the, was the winner. So we'll tell ourselves all kinds of things to begin to justify decisions that we've made or decisions that we want to make. You've heard the expression before, it's easier to get forgiveness than it is to get permission that's a form of self-justification we it's not true amen but we justify it we live with ourselves and our guilt and our shame and our defeat sometimes by justifying ourselves in our minds and you know this started way back in genesis chapter 3 when god comes to the garden 
And he says to Adam, what's going on here? And Adam says, the woman that you gave me. And he says to Eve, what's going on? Well, that serpent in the garden. Heard old one old preacher say, Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the serpent, and the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. <laughs> We've always been justifying ourselves, blaming, blaming somebody else. And so the fact that Luke highlights this in the gospel, he's it's this, it's this minor theme that, that runs all the way through. So this guy wanting to, the second question, the guy wanting to um, justify himself, ask a question, well, who is my neighbor? If I'm going to love my neighbor as I sell, myself, then I better set some parameters here. I better figure out who exactly it is that's my neighbor. And so Jesus, instead of answering the question right away, begins to tell him a story. And so he paints a picture for him, or tells him a story of some men going, a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's about 17 miles, literally downhill elevation-wise, and it's somewhat rugged terrain. And this guy along the road was robbed, beaten, and stripped. He's naked and unconscious on the side of the road. Now, in the first century society and structure, you could learn a lot about somebody based on where they were from, their location, based upon some of the clothing that they wore, maybe the dialect of their language, maybe their accent. There were, there were, these were markers, so to speak. To, you could look at somebody and kind of tell what section of town they were from or what region that they were a part of. But this man, there was no way to identify him. He was unconscious, he was bleeding, and the bandits, the thieves that had come before, had literally stripped him of all his clothing. And so as the high priest comes by and he sees the man there, we're told that he just goes, on, he goes out of his way and goes around, he bypasses the man that was laying there. Perhaps if he, the man had been awake, and he could have had some kind of conversation or dialogue with the man. Or if the guy had had clothes on, maybe if he'd had some priestly robes or something, maybe the story would have been different. Maybe the, the, the high priest would have helped him or something if he could have identified who, who the guy was. But Jesus says the man is broken, he's bleeding, he's unconscious, he's naked. There was no way of identifying who this man was, what people group. So he goes out of his way and goes around him. And then along comes a Levite. And he does the same thing. The point of the story is that if anyone was going to help this man, shouldn't it have been a religious leader? A man who knew God and loved God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. And his neighbor as himself, a, un, someone who understood the law. But understanding and doing sometimes are two different things. And then comes a Samaritan. Now it's hard for us to 
understand the context of what Jesus was saying here. So for shock effect, let me change the story just a little bit for you. I'm not adding to it, and I'm not taking away from it. I just want to change the delivery style in a way that we can understand it. And it's certainly not emergent. (laughs) You had to be in Sunday school to, to understand that comment. So if I was to tell the story, let's say that an evangelical pastor... Got your attention? A Catholic priest and a Muslim. Is it an imam? I'm not sure exactly what, uh, what you call a, a, a Muslim priest. I think it's imam, though, so we'll go with that. So you have an evangelical pastor, a, a Roman Catholic priest, and an imam. And the evangelical pastor and the priest go out of their way and go around, but the Muslim imam cares for the guy, bandages him up, and takes him. You're not supposed to tell stories like that in church. The wrong guy wins. The wrong guy is the hero. You see, to understand what Jesus was saying here, you'd have to know that the Jews hated the Samaritans. They were, in their minds, they were half-breeds. They were unintelligent when it came to the law. They had actually set up their own places of worship instead of coming to Jerusalem. And the Samaritans looked at the Jews as um, being brutal and being hateful and um, unapproachable. and just They just didn't want to have anything to do with each other. And so when Jesus tells the story, he makes the one guy that none of the Jews would like, he makes him the hero of the story. The Samaritans a despised Samaritan. He's the one who stops, pours oil and wine on the guy. These were often mingled together for medical purposes. He puts the guy on his own donkey, which means now he's walking. Several miles. Takes him to an inn. Wasn't the Hyatt or the Regency. It was just basically a little lean-to, probably on the side of a house, oftentimes where animals were kept. But it was some shelter, nonetheless. And cared for the guy. And then as he leaves, he gives the guy money to care for him. And says, if there's anything extra, put that on my account. I'll take care of it when I come back through. This is what the Samaritan does. So Jesus tells this story to answer the guy's question. Well, then who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? But when Jesus finishes telling the story, he tweaks the question just a little bit. And he doesn't ask, who is my neighbor? He asks, to whom must I be a neighbor? Who is the neighbor to this man who fell among thieves, Jesus asked. Instead of answering the original question, who is my neighbor? Jesus determines the man's entire attitude by asking him this question. How do I become a neighbor? To whom must I be a neighbor? That changes the entire discussion. It is so penetrating. It exposes the man's self-justification. And the man is forced to answer the one who had mercy on him. Now don't miss this. The guy couldn't even say the Samaritan. He couldn't even acknowledge that it was the Samaritan. He just says the guy who showed mercy. 
can tell that it kind of stung a little bit. Cuts to the heart of the matter. Couldn't even bring himself to say it. The one who showed mercy. And then Jesus' response is, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. If you can live your life like this, loving God perfectly with every ounce of your being and loving every person, because in reality, whether you live next door to somebody or not, they're your neighbor. And if you can do all that, then you don't need grace. Just live that way, and you're in. But this expert of the law, and you and I know that we can't. I can't. So the conclusion is there's two ways of looking at this. What can I do to inherit eternal life, which is nothing? And versus what can God do? Because you see, if you go back and you read the Good Samaritan and, you, and you'll, you kind of begin to see it more, the more times you read Luke, start to finish all the way through, you begin to see that really what Jesus is saying without really saying it, who's the Good Samaritan? It's Jesus. Because you see, Jesus came along the road and he found us beaten. He found us downtrodden. He found us naked and bleeding and car, uh, unconscious. He found us laying on the side of the road and others wouldn't have anything to do with us because of our sin. And yet he says, come with me. He picks us up and he says, charge it to his account. Charge it to my account. All of the debt. See, what the Samaritan did was not just saving the guy's life on the short term there, but the long term too. Because when the guy says, if, he, if there's anything else that's owned, charge it to my account, I'll make it right. He was preventing that guy from actually becoming a bond servant, from actually having to sell himself into slavery because I don't know how many days he was going to be there before he got better. And when, once he did get better, guess what? He's going to need some clothes. <laughs> He's going to need uh, you know, a, a donkey or a horse most likely if he wants to, to get back to wherever it is that he came from. These things add up, you know, these hospital costs, so to speak. And there's only, back then, there was a thing called debtor's prison. I think Pastor mentioned that a few weeks back. And so if you couldn't pay your bill, you, you worked it off. And the Samaritan said, I'll be back. I'll take care of it. Charge it to my account, which is exactly what Jesus did for us. I found it interesting that when uh, this man quotes, quoting from the law, he uses the book of Deuteronomy. Remember how the book of Deuteronomy ends? It ends with Moses being on the mountain looking across to the promised land, but Moses didn't get to go in, did he? You remember why Moses didn't get to go in? Because he had sinned, Right? Remember when God said, speak to the rock and angry, and Moses got angry and struck the rock? Moses, this man of God, this man who parted the Red Sea, the man who, you know, just 
walked with the children of Israel for 40 years, teaching them, instructing them. He didn't go in to the promised land because he sinned. Now, I'm not saying Moses didn't go to heaven. If you look in the Gospels, you see on the Mount Transfiguration, who's there with Jesus? Moses and Elijah. In fact, Peter gets so excited, he wants to build three temples until God says, this is my son. Not, just not taking away from the importance of the other two guys, but it's not about Moses and it's not about Elijah. It's about Christ. So Moses is there in heaven. But wait a minute. Moses sinned. He didn't get to go into the promised land. See, what the book of Deuteronomy tells us, it's not what we do. It's what's been done for us on our behalf. Christ came. He justifies us before God. He paid the bill. He paid the debt that we owe. Both the immediate debt and then the eternal debt has been paid by Christ. So Jesus says to the guy, go and do likewise. Be a neighbor. Being a Christian requires sacrifice. Not from the sense of doing things to earn our salvation, but because Christ modeled what being a Christian is about, laying down his life for us. The, the Gospels tell us that now we go and we take up our cross daily and we lay it down. And so, see, being a Christian costs us everything. It costs us our time, costs us our money, it costs us our resources. And we do these things not to be saved, but we do them because the one who saved us modeled for us. And we love him so much that we want to show other people that same love. I love the book of James where he talks about, show me your works and I'll show you your faith. We don't work to have faith, but our faith causes us, motivates us to do the work of Christ for other people's. So it's not about what I can do, but it's about what God has done for me and now is doing through me. And we get to become good Samaritans to those that we meet along the road each day. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for tremendous love that you have for us in, our son Christ, in your son Christ Jesus. Father, we thank, we're thankful, Lord, that you did not leave us where you found us, but you picked us up, you paid the debt, and you set us on solid ground. Father, we're thankful that you have justified us in the eyes of your Son, Christ Jesus. And now, Father, help us to live each day in the fullness and the understanding of that love and by demonstrating that love to other people. Father, open our eyes that we might see those along the road, those that are hurting, those that are bruised, those that are lost. And Father, use us to lead them to your son, Jesus. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.